Our scripture passage this morning is coming from Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 54, verses 54 through 62. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. I encourage you to turn to it in your Bibles. I encourage you to leave your Bibles open as I preach. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. And uh, again, I do encourage you to strive to actively listen. Uh, The sermon is not a spectator sport. You're called to actively listen and receive the word of God preached as it is the word of God. And I encourage you to strive to do that this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 54, uh, verses uh, 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You you also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now we are looking this morning at what may be one of the most famous accounts from the life of the Apostle Peter. I would be willing to bet that when most folks think about the Apostle Peter, there are two events in his life that they think of. Him walking on water and his denial of of Jesus Christ. And I have to say, on the one hand, I do think it's a bit of a shame that when we consider the entire life and ministry of Peter, I think it's a shame that what many people are familiar with the most are his failures, his falling into the water as he took his eyes off Christ, and his falling, his great sin of denying Jesus, a sin that is, in its essence, not terribly different from Judas's betrayal of Jesus. The consequences of Judas's sin, the spiritual condition of Judas himself, the scope and the gravity of Judas's sin might be quite different than Peter's sin, but the essence of Peter and Judas's sin are quite similar because both are a denial and therefore a betrayal of the one whom they both call Lord. And as I said, it's a shame that what many people are able to recall the most about the life of Peter is these moments of failure, considering the truth that it was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, which became the rock upon which Jesus built his church. It was Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, which the Holy Spirit used to bring over 3,000 more people to faith in Jesus Christ. It was Peter's obedience and going to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, which led to the gospel going out to the entire Gentile world. 
In light of all of that, it is sad to consider that maybe what Peter is most remembered for is his failings and his denial of Jesus. But if we would keep the entire picture in our minds, not just his fall and his denial, but also what Jesus did in and through this moment in the life of Peter, I would say then that it is, in a sense, not a shame at all if when we think of the Apostle Peter, we remember this moment in his life and ministry. Because here, in this low moment of Peter's life, we see the overflowing grace and mercy and love of our Lord and Savior. We see his tender love for his sheep. We see his willingness to forgive and save and even use the most vilest of sinners for his glory and for the building up and edification of the church. There are two points I want us to focus on this morning, beloved. The first, of course, is the very nature of Peter's denial. We'll look at this in verses 56 through 60. We're going to look at what's entailed in this denial. The second thing we're going to, the second point I want us to consider is the very nature of Jesus Christ's look. Recorded for us in verse 61, when Jesus turns and looks at Peter. So first, the very nature of Peter's denial, verses 56 through 60. Now, verses 54 and 55 do set the stage for us. Last week, we looked at the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This morning, Luke tells us that after this large crowd, this army, really, arrests Jesus and lead him out of the garden, they take him to the high priest's house. You can read more about that in Matthew. Uh, but this house, it was probably laid out with rooms all built around an open courtyard. And the room to which Jesus was taken and examined by the high priest, it would have likely been a sort of gallery where people in the courtyard could watch and hear everything that was going on in that room. And to Peter's credit, to Peter's credit here, he did indeed follow Jesus to the high priest's house. We know from the other gospel accounts that all the other disciples scattered with fear in the garden. Only two of them actually followed Jesus. We know the other disciple who followed him is John. John chapter 18, uh, you get the sense that John is very much so talking about himself. So Peter and John follow this mob. They follow Jesus. So we might say... In the fact that Peter had the courage to follow the arresting party, here is somewhat of a high point in Peter's life. When everyone else scattered in fear, he had the courage to stay. Although at a distance, he had the courage to stay and follow Jesus. But this is where the high point comes crashing down into the lowest point in Peter's life. And understand, it did not take very much to bring Peter down. In fact, all it took was a servant girl to undo all the courage of Peter. There are two things I want us to notice about the nature of Peter's denial and his fall. The first is this. We have to understand Peter's fall here, his great sin, did not begin in the courtyard when he denied Jesus. It began in the garden of Gethsemane. Let me remind you all of an exchange between Jesus and Peter that took place just a few hours before this event 
It took place at the Last Supper in the upper room. Luke chapter 22, rather, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. In that moment, Jesus warned Peter that Satan demanded to have him so that he may sift him like wheat. And what was Peter's response to that warning from Jesus? You may remember, if you were with us, Peter said in verse 33 of chapter 22, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You see, there's a hint of arrogance in Peter's response to Jesus in that moment. It was, as, it was a, as if he was saying, Lord, Satan could never sift me. I would never allow Satan to sift me. I will follow you to prison, to death, no matter what. And while Peter seems in the beginning of our passage this morning to make good on that promise, it was not long before Peter, it seems, was indeed sifted by Satan. I think it's worth pointing out the words, words of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. The famous words, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The word haughty perfectly describes Peter in Luke 22, verse 33. It means conceited. It means that Peter had a sense of splendor about his own resolve to follow Jesus even to death. And so King Solomon's words in Proverbs 16 prove true. Peter's haughty spirit came before his great fall. And in the garden, what did Jesus tell Peter and the other disciples to do while he went off by himself to pray? He told them to pray. And why? He said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke tells us the disciples all failed to do that. Because they all fell asleep instead of praying that they would not fall. It is precisely because the disciples fell asleep in the garden instead of praying. It is because of that that most of them scattered and abandoned Jesus. And it is precisely because Peter fell asleep instead of staying awake to pray that he and the court of the house of the high priest denied Jesus. That's where Peter's failing, his fall began. When he fell asleep, that is where this great sin began to unfold. And beloved, there's a warning here for all of us. Peter thought arrogantly that he would never leave Jesus' side. He would never deny his Lord. He was ready in his mind to follow Jesus to prison and to the grave if needed. And yet, that is exactly where Satan sifted him. That's exactly where Satan tempted him. And that's exactly where Peter sinned and fell. Here's the warning, beloved, because we all have areas where we think there is no way I would ever commit such a sin or fall in such a way. Whatever that may be, it's going to be different for all of us. But we all need to be very careful with this thinking, brothers and sisters, because I am convinced that it is in the area where you think you are least susceptible, it is in that area which you think you'll never fall, where Satan will attack you and attempt to sift you like wheat. We need to heed the warning from Peter's example because we are up against a very real spiritual enemy, a real foe, an enemy, let's face it, who is smarter than you, craftier than you. 
An enemy who knows where you are weak. An enemy who knows exactly how to sift you. The Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle said the best and highest saint is a poor, weak creature, even at his best times. Whether he knows it or not, he carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness, however fair and decent his outward conduct may seem. There is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray, and if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read of the fall of Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. Understand, many of our most grievous sins begin because we did as Peter and the disciples did. We sleep instead of praying. So we need to stay awake beloved, and pray that we may not fall into temptation. Peter failed to do that. And that is where this great fall began. The second thing I want us to see about the nature of Peter's denial is how comprehensive his denial was. Three times, beloved, three, three times Peter denied Christ. This is not a mere slip of the tongue, you see. It was intentional. And in a sense, each of those denials intensify. The first comes, verse 57. Here a servant girl simply states that Peter was with Jesus. And Peter's response is a simple response. Woman, I do not know him. The second denial, verse 58. Someone else said to him, you are also one of them. Peter's response, man, I am not. This It's not only a denial that he knew Jesus. Here in this second denial, Peter is denying that he himself is a disciple of Jesus. The third and most heinous denial of Jesus comes in verse 60, where Peter denies knowing anything about anything at all, even attempting to deny his own hometown by denying that he is a Galilean. Now Luke doesn't give us the full picture of the third denial, but Mark does. Mark chapter 14, verse 71. This is what Mark records. But he, Peter, in the third denial, began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It was as if Peter was lifting his eyes to the heavens and saying, May God strike me dead if I am lying. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Three times, in three ways, Peter denied Jesus. He denied him as comprehensively as anyone could ever deny anything. And beloved, there's something particularly tragic in this denial. Because this was a very public denial from one of Jesus' most closest companions. And here, again, if I could just make a brief point of application, there's a very poignant point of application for us this morning as the people of God. You see, in private, Peter was a great stalwart, a man, it seems, of unshakable faith. He was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the one who swore he'd go to death itself with Jesus. In private, that is who Peter was. In the safety of the community of faith, 
When it was just Peter and the disciples and Jesus, his faith was unshakable. But now in public, what does he do? He denies the very one whom he confessed is the Christ. At the words of a few strangers who, as far as we know, could not have done anything to Peter physically, at, a wor- at, at the words of a few strangers, he calls curses upon himself and insists he has no clue who Jesus is. And beloved, I have to ask, how many of you are just like Peter in this regard? You come on Sunday, and when you're around the church, when you're with other Christians, you're a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You're a great confessor of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. His name is ever on your lips. Your faith is living and vibrant. Your hunger and thirst for His Word is real and unquenchable. And then you leave the doors of the church. And in public, one could scarcely tell you apart from the staunchest of atheists. Now your private confessions, I'm not saying they're worthless, but unless we are willing to stand for Christ in public, we are no better than Peter in this moment. And I want you to listen to something Phil Riken said in, in his commentary on this passage. And Let me just say this. This commentary is at least 15 years old. So it's not as if he's trying to target any particular issue in our current cultural climate. But it's amazing how relevant these words are. Philip Riken says, I deny Christ when I talk with my friends about being involved at church, but not about what it means to know Jesus. I deny Christ when there is so little that is distinctive about the way I live that people at work or school do not even know that I am a Christian. I deny Christ when I am so afraid about what people think that I shrink back from telling people the biblical truth about controversial issues like abortion or homosexuality or the unique claims of Jesus Christ as the world's only Savior. If I cannot speak up and say anything for Jesus, what kind of disciple am I anyway? Peter's denial of Jesus, beloved, it was comprehensive. And so is ours when we fail to uphold both the name and the teachings of Jesus Christ in the public sphere. This is the nature of Peter's denial. It came because he failed to stay awake and pray. It was a public denial. It was a thorough denial. And now we come to verse 61, where Luke writes, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And this is the second main point I want us to consider from our text this morning, the very nature of the look of Jesus Christ. Now here in this look that Jesus gives Peter, we are once again reminded of the great reality, and we talked about this last week, the great reality that Jesus Christ, even in his arrest and trial, is completely and utterly sovereign and in control of all things. It was not by chance. It was not merely a circumstance of the day that Jesus at that moment turned and locked eyes with Peter. He knew exactly what Peter had just done. In fact, it was he himself who prophesied that Peter would do it. Again, going back to earlier in Luke chapter 22, verse 34, right after Peter proudly and boldly proclaims he would go to prison and death with with the Lord, Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, 
the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The look, the glance of Jesus Christ, it had to be utterly heartbreaking to Peter in that moment. And we have to assume that through his eyes, through this look, Jesus was speaking to Peter's heart in that moment and saying, did I not tell you? Did I not tell you this would happen? Is this not exactly as I said it would be? Indeed, Luke tells us, just as Peter was making his third denial, the rooster crowed. And right in that moment is when Jesus turned and made contact with one of his most beloved disciples who had just denied him. And Peter immediately, Luke says, Peter immediately remembered Jesus' prophecy. The sense of shame had to be overwhelming for Peter in that moment. And I think rightfully so. I know that we have a culture right now that wants us to believe that shame is a bad thing. You can't shame people, we're told. Uh, Shaming people is shamed in our culture. And if you feel any sense of shame, we are all told that we need to free ourselves from this sense of shame. Even in the Christian church, this is common language. There are whole books about shame culture in the church. Shame is almost exclusively spoken of in negative terms. But beloved, shame is valuable. Shame has a place. And our culture, our society, and our churches could use a lot more of it. Because we should feel shame. Shame for what? Shame for our sin. Shame for our rebellion against the Holy God. Shame for our denial of Jesus Christ as Lord. We can never repent. We can never turn to Christ unless we first feel deep-seated shame for our sin. Now, as we will see here in just a moment, shame does not, in and of itself, equate to repentance. Nor does it always produce repentance. But the one who is repentant must have some sense of shame. And Peter had to feel an overwhelming sense of shame, brothers and sisters and friends. He knew he did the very thing which Jesus warned him about. He denied the one whom I truly believe, I truly believe this about Peter, he denied the one whom he truly loved the most. But I also want you to understand this, beloved. In this look from Jesus, Jesus Christ was reminding Peter of far more than just his prophecy of his denial. I firmly believe he was bringing to Peter's mind everything else that Jesus said to Peter in that exchange when Jesus told him, you will deny me. What is included? What else did Jesus say to Peter in that moment? Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, what does that mean? Repent. Jesus was saying, when you repent, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus didn't just say, you're going to deny me. He said, you will repent, and you are to then strengthen the church. 
And those things, those two were prophetic statements from Jesus Christ. They were set concrete promises that would happen just as assuredly as Peter's denial would happen. And I really believe that Jesus in this moment, as he turned and looked at Peter, he was not only bringing to his mind this great sin and shame, Jesus was also, even in that moment, think about what Jesus was experiencing in this moment. He was surrounded by bloodthirsty enemies who were clawing for his death. Even in that moment, he turns to Peter, he looks at him, and he reaches out to him through this look, calling him to repentance and reminding him of the great promise that he will be restored. And beloved, in a few hours, Jesus would go to the cross to make atonement even for the sin of Peter denying him so that Peter could be restored and go on to strengthen his brothers. Was all of this truly in the mind of Peter as he locked eyes with Jesus Christ? Was all of this, the shame, the guilt of his sin, a sense of grief over his sin, but also a reminder of the promise that Jesus, even when Peter failed, that Jesus was praying for him? And was it in his mind that Jesus was holding out before him the promise of repentance and restoration? Was all of this really going through the mind of Peter in that moment? I have to say yes, beloved. I believe it truly was. But I do want us to be careful at how we come to that conclusion. Because there may be some of you who will read to verse 62 and say, well, Peter grieved he wept bitterly. That must be evidence that Peter was repenting. No, beloved, verse 62 is not evidence of Peter's repentance. Because remember Judas. He too had a very similar response. Matthew tells us Judas, after his betrayal of Jesus, was seized with remorse. That is the language Matthew uses for Judas. Now, if Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial are in their essence the same sin, then understand this, the response of the two men and the tears that they both bitterly cried are antithetical to one another. They are the opposite responses. Judas, like Peter, was remorseful. Judas, like Peter, regretted his actions. Judas, like Peter, hated that he ever sinned and betrayed Jesus Christ. But Judas, unlike Peter, did not repent. He may have recoiled from his sin, but he did not turn to the mercy of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Beloved, I hope you understand this by now. I have said this over and over and over again from this pulpit throughout the last three and a half years, and I will continue saying it so long as the Lord keeps me as a minister of the gospel. True repentance is not simply feeling sorry, not simply feeling shame and guilt and grief over your sin. It's not just regretting your sin, feeling remorse for your sin, or being sorry for your sin. Repentance is a turning away from your sin and a turning to the mercy of God that is found in Jesus with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And no matter how many times you fall, no matter how many times you sin, even when you sin with that same old sin that you've sinned countless times before, that is what 
repentance is. That's the response that's needed. It is a turning away from your sin with grief and hatred for it, turning towards the mercy of God that's found in Jesus Christ with a renewed spirit to endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is a pattern of the Christian life, beloved. This is exactly why Jesus told Peter, when you have turned again, turned again, turned away from your sin and turned back to Christ. Judas felt sorry for his sin. He wept bitterly, but he did not turn to God and plead for his mercy, and he did not endeavor after a changed life. No, instead, beloved, what did he do? He ended his life. But Peter, we can absolutely imply Peter, having understood what Judas did not, having understood that through the grace of repentance came the promise of restoration, remembering all that Jesus promised him, Peter repented. He too wept bitterly, but his tears were different than the tears of Judas. His tears were not merely tears of regret or remorse, but instead they were tears of godly grief. There is a difference. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that godly grief produces repentance which leads to salvation without regret. Judas's tears. I think we can say Judas's tears were world, tears of worldly grief. And in the same passage, 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says worldly grief does not produce salvation. It produces death. Listen, beloved, although we are not told this in the text, although Luke and really none of the other gospel accounts tell us of Peter's repentance, they don't tell us that his grief was godly grief, they don't tell us that the look of Jesus Christ brought to Peter's mind not only the prophecy of his denial, but also the promise of repentance and restoration. We know, we know 100% that Peter understood and he repented. We know it because what the Gospels do tell us is they tell us of his restoration. And there is no restoration without repentance. It's found in John's Gospel, chapter 21. Starting in verse 15, John tells us of an event that took place after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, just before his ascension into heaven. He writes, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Beloved, you can probably see for yourself. What's happening here in this account from John's Gospel? While the Scriptures do not explicitly tell us of Peter's repentance, we know it happened because John explicitly tells us of his restoration. And do you understand, if Peter's denial was thorough, comprehensive, 
utter, an utterly complete denial of Jesus. You understand how much more so Jesus' restoration to him was complete? Because just as Peter denied Christ three times, three times does Peter declare his love for Jesus. Just as Peter denied Christ three times, three times does Jesus tell him, feed my sheep. Beloved, not only did Jesus Christ restore Peter, he restored him comprehensively, and then he used Peter in a way that I think it's safe to say none of the apostles were used. It was through Peter and his preaching and his obedience to Christ that the first century Christian church grew truly into a global community of faith. He played a unique role in that early church. He truly was, through the Holy Spirit, the rock upon which Christ built his church. Brothers and sisters and friends, here in what is an account of a tremendous sin from, an, from really a tremendous apostle, and the account of a great and terrible fall, a massive failure, a grievous sin, here is an account of the tremendous love of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, and the love he has for his sheep. In this passage, in the fall of Peter, when we take the whole thing together, and we remember not only his fall, but the words that Jesus spoke to him before his fall, and the words that Jesus spoke to him after his fall, in the whole picture we see Christ's grace, we see his mercy, we see his love, and his love not only for Peter, but for you. We see how deep it is. It's here for us to see in the, life of the, in the life of Peter. But we need to know this, beloved. He loves you no less than he loves Peter. And in the moments of your great sinning, when he turns and locks eyes with you, which he does every time his gospel is proclaimed, this is why believers need to hear the gospel as much as non-believers, when he turns and locks eyes with you and reminds you of the promise of repentance and restoration, even if you should publicly deny him before men, even if you should betray him, if you will turn in repentance as Peter did, you will be restored just as Peter was restored. There is no sin in your lives, beloved, in which there is not the full hope and assurance and promise of forgiveness and restoration if you repent. Your sins, understand, are not more powerful than a single drop of the Savior's blood. As the great Puritan Richard Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Repent and you will be restored just as Peter was restored. Restored comprehensively. Restored thoroughly. Restored completely. Even, beloved, one day at the great white throne, restored publicly, as the Lord Jesus Christ will declare that you are just and holy and brought into His eternal kingdom. And, beloved, you will be restored for all eternity.